0: So hi, I'm Philip Anthony Albertelli uh, with the Weekend Out podcast, and today uh, we have a special interview episode, and my guest is Alexander Nye, the writer of the play Son of Man. And uh, before we dig into the meat of the subject, uh, is there a particular theater or any dates and times you want to make people aware of?
1: Not just yet. The plan is to put the project on Kickstarter um, at the at the beginning of June, and then uh, we go into uh, we're gonna have a theatre hopefully sometime in in September. But that's a little way down the line at the moment. So these are just sort of uh, it's just to make people aware of the the Kickstarter project at this at this point, really.
0: Excellent. Just generate some awareness and some anticipation and right when um you approached me uh with the possibility of doing an interview and you had mentioned the uh basically the gist of the play uh it it caught my attention right away because even though I'm um I eschew labels and, and I feel like they kind of limit you once you kind of slap a sticker on yourself um Depending on how strictly one interprets the label, you could probably call me an atheist, um, maybe a strong agnostic. Um, as kind of confusing as it sounds, I sometimes go with uh, the label of agnostic atheist. Um, agnostic because I believe you can't be sure with 100% certainty whether there is or isn't a god, and I don't even know of any... Um, Atheist who would claim they know with 100% certainty, uh, but atheistic because I extremely doubt the existence of a, um, higher power and, or an afterlife. Um, and, and so it's, it's probably safe to call me, uh, an atheist. And despite that, I've, uh, long had a fascination with religion, a fascination with the, uh, life of Christ Two of my favorite um, movies, uh, one is actually a miniseries, Franco Zeffirelli's, the um, uh, epic miniseries, Jesus of Nazareth. I think we're going back to the 80s with that one. And uh, another one is the on the other end of the spectrum is the controversial uh, Last Temptation of Christ, oh, yes, um, yes. Martin Scorsese. And I can remember, I-, I was really young at the time, but that caused quite the uproar. Um, so, so Uh, I've, I've had this fascination with the story of Christ and, and I used to wonder what would it be like if someone told a secular version of the story of Christ or if you stripped out the supernatural aspects. And so the gist I got is that that's kind of what you're doing. So right away I'm thinking it would be great to do an interview with this guy. Um, but you can tell I'm kind of a long-winded individual. But now I'll hand, hand things over to you. And why don't uh, you give us an idea of the gist of the play and maybe the impetus uh, for doing it?
1: Okay. Um, so, well, it I'm, I'm, sounds like I'm very similar to yourself, really. I don't uh, go in for labels much when it's, it's about talking about my own... Uh, experience and stuff but like yourself i'd say i'm probably agnostic atheist with a very high degree of interest in uh religion specifically the religion that I was brought up with that being christianity um i guess i would say the impetus for it is to um create a version of the jesus story where like you say there's no supernaturals no, no supernatural invi- elements involved apart from what's in the, he- the characters' heads. So um, I guess the way I envisaged it was that I wanted to tell the story of uh, of how Jesus came to sort of accept his mission and um, how he came to get the idea that he was the son of a god. And there's been a lot of like historical uh, scholarship theories over the, over the centuries about exactly what Jesus thought of himself. And I wanted to kind of bring those theories out from scholarship and bring them just into the, into the realm of entertainment. You know, I wanted to make them like real and, um, something that we sort of can discuss and can watch without, uh, a fear of um you know it being disrespectful or something like that i want so i wanted to make a a, a a play for a play about jesus that atheists would and agnostics and humanists and all the rest of them would gladly come and sit down and watch and you know like really get something out of because i think we're a little um underserved in that regard um you know there's this kind of a lot of the time you when you hear c- criticism from Uh, christians and other religious folk in in debate they'll often say things like well why are you interested what you've got what are you um why do you care about whether the trinity is real or mary was a virgin or whatnot and so for me it's like kind of um it's like taking that well no i am interested but you know i'd like to hear the story or uh the background of the story,' because it's not really the story of christ's life. this is kind of like I envisaged it as Jesus the prequel, so it's kind of like Batman begins, but for jesus and um and I thought that would that would maybe interest a lot a lot of non religious people and maybe religious people as well actually I'm, I haven't actually had any religious people read it yet, so I'll have to see about that one but so I guess the main overall impetus was. Uh, try and find out um, a secular version.
0: But one thing you said that uh, really struck me and and that I can relate to is you talked about the kind of defensive stance that believers will sometimes take towards non-believers. And you talked about how when um, religious folks will sometimes hear about a atheist or a, a secular individual who has an interest in religion they'll be defensive and they'll say oh well, why are you interested in that or um so and so and i can remember uh one time i posted an episode of my podcast onto youtube and it might have been my response to um this book written by now i'm trying to th- Uh, Eben Alexander. Eben Alexander is a Harvard neurosurgeon who supposedly had a near-death experience, and he wrote a book entitled, I believe it's Proof of Heaven. And I was respectful, but I gave a breakdown of why I thought at the end of the day his story was basically anecdotal, and it didn't amount to any type of empirical evidence of an afterlife etc and someone uh very defensively said for someone that doesn't believe in god you sure like to talk about him a lot <laughs> and uh and i responded pretty much well you're right and i'm yeah. thinking whether you're whether or not you're a believer what is more important As a human being, being a temporary little being on one little planet in this vast universe, what can be more important than contemplating what is the point of my existence? How did I get here? What is the truth of it? And um, just because you still believe and I no longer believe doesn't mean you have any more right to those topics than I do. I was raised Christian. I almost even though I'm not a believer, I was raised Roman Catholic and I almost feel like Catholicism is swimming in my blood. You know, it's it's ingrained in me. I don't believe, but I come from a Christian background and as a human being, I have just as much a, a right as you to um try to figure out what the truth of it is and to explore those ideas that i was indoctrinated into and in a sense you might even argue that a non-believer might take those topics even more seriously Because they're constantly wrestling with them, being intellectually honest and um, trying to having the bravery or the intellectual honesty to ask themselves if these things are actually true and not just blindly embracing them. You know what I mean?
1: Yes, yes. Uh, I think it's um, I think there's one thing I'd like to see. um, You know, I'd like to see more atheists and more humanists approach things from that sort of angle and say you know like this is the these are the rituals and these are the stories and the mythos that we've inherited from our our past our shared past and you know what sense can we make of it because i think there's this uh sense i get from a lot in the atheist community where they're like they seem to want to shut themselves off from the from the the concept of god completely like they want they want to like just completely sort of almost ban the word (laughs) in a way and it's like well if you do that you're not going to be able to understand what two thousand years of human beings and previously to that what they understood you know so the way i look at uh uh beliefs that i no longer hold is you know I, i look at them in a sense of like let's keep them in some way uh intact let's keep them in some way understandable so that you know we so that we know where we've come from and uh we know how to interpret these things and you know for one thing we we know how to you know fight off uh fundamentalism and stuff like that and just for the sake of of like uh pure human learning and culture really because i think it's important to um uh, to, to be in in contact with all that stuff I mean I was talking about this with a friend earlier on um, one of the things I think it's interesting about Christianity is that it's kind of a link to the blood rituals of our nearest ancestors now it's probably pretty certain that our ancestors from all the way back to prehistoric African times practiced loads and loads of different rituals uh, probably a lot of them involve in blood and the one that's the closest to us is the christian one like out throughout the scope of history and uh, you know i think that in a way in a weird way that sort of like um helps to uh answer a lot of sort of anthropological questions or um not questions so much but helps to give a sort of anthropological uh view to To the way I view human society and stuff, so yeah i mean i'm I'm totally with with um atheists discussing God and kind of reclaiming the word as well a little bit, you know in the same way that people have reclaimed the word um you know like other uh, controversial words over over history, I think God is definitely one of those words that should be reclaimed to some degree,
0: and it's funny because um. Yeah, Sometimes I feel like I'm doing a balancing act myself because um, there are kind of militant atheists out there. And if you've sometimes they feel if you're being too um, forgiving about certain aspects of religion, they feel like you're being kind of an apologist or you're not strong enough. Um, But then if you're openly critical of religion, you start offending, uh, believers. So at the end of the day, I always try to reset myself, uh, to the point of view that, well, it's the truth we're after here. And if we piss anyone off on either side of the argument too bad, we're on the, we're on the trail of the truth. And, um, sometimes I'll get in trouble with fellow non-believers or atheists because I think quote unquote militant atheists go too far um, because every year uh, here in America we have Fox News and uh, they're infamous enough that you've probably heard about them in uh, mm-hmm. oh, yeah. in England as well and there's um, Bill O'Reilly the host of the O'Reilly Factor and every year he goes into uh, the war on Christmas and how atheists want to destroy Christmas or whatever mm-hmm. and um, I agree with him in one small way that I almost look at it as the kind of real world equivalent of trolling, where you'll have atheist or humanist groups who will put up signs or billboards at Christmas time that will say things like "there is no God, so be good for goodness' sake" and stuff like that. And I, I believe that one hundred percent. That's my viewpoint. I don't believe in a God, and I think you should be good. But at the same time, I think about the old woman who's known religion all her life and maybe she's at the end of her days. Or I think about the young child who hopefully they will find the truth on their own or they will become a a free thinker. But as a fragile child, they've been taught to believe in God. And I imagine them having to confront these type of things in the um, public arena without asking for it. It's kind of different than if a religious person goes to a debate between a theist and atheist and they intentionally go and they intentionally know what they're getting into, or if they intentionally click on a YouTube link that has someone being critical of religion. Um, So sometimes I feel a little protective of uh, religious people in that way, or I think that militant atheists can go too far. But on the other side, I sometimes think that religious people have this kind of stereotype of atheists as, you know, the atheist is this kind of boogeyman or bogeyman that um, is unable to experience quote-unquote spiritual things or that is this total Grinch that's out to strip life of all its magic. And I think it's more the case that the average atheist is someone who um, just doubts the uh, supernatural claims of religion, uh, thinks that religions are man-made, but they too are able to experience or access what, for lack of a better term, people um, define as spiritual or transcendent experiences, art, poetry, the beauty of landscape and nature these kind of moments where the eagle with the the eagle yes <laughs> where the ego dissolves and you feel like you're one with something greater than yourself i think all of us unless you're missing something um neurologically all of us can access that stuff but the difference is as a non-believer when i have a moment of kind of zen or when i feel moved by music or, or poetry I say to myself, that's not evidence that some higher power is working through me. It could just be um, neurological in nature. It could be biochemical. You know, the same way if you run in place for 15 minutes, you get a runner's high and you feel plugged into something else. Or if you take some kind of psychedelic substance or whatever. Um, but yeah, I think there's this misconception or stereotype that an atheist is someone who claims to know with 100% certainty that there is no God, and there's someone that wants to strip all the magic out of life. And I think with the average atheist, even high-profile atheists, like um, the late Christopher Hitchens or Richard Dawkins, I've seen photographs of Richard Dawkins with his Christmas tree, or... um, Or, you know, Christopher Hitchens used to talk about how he would sometimes be moved by kind of rural Christian poetry or how he would often be moved by the beauty of landscape or something like that. And I would hear um, atheist, uh, I mean, theist opponents of his in debates when he would talk about the transcendent would say, well, transcend what? if you don't believe in a God or an afterlife, what are you transcending? And I used to think to myself, you idiots, what he's talking about is transcending a normal mode of consciousness. You know, you don't need to believe in a higher power to believe in, um, these kind of transcendent modes of consciousness that we all enter into sometimes. Um, and uh, one of my favorite people, and uh, he's also unfortunately passed, is Joseph Campbell. And Joseph, oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, Joseph Campbell would talk about the power of symbolism. And uh, he didn't believe in religion literally either, though. And he, I remember there's this great debate, uh, not debate, there's this great epic interview that originally aired on P, on uh, PBS between... Journalist Bill Moyers and um, Joseph Campbell. And it was entitled The Power of Myth. And Joseph Campbell would say, of course, the Virgin Mary didn't literally rocket off into space. You know, uh, of course, Jesus didn't literally, uh, I don't know if you use this example, but of course, there wasn't a literal resurrection. But um, the, there's these certain archetypes or these certain symbols that resonate with us. And one of them, Probably would be uh, the death and resurrection myth, which features prominently at the heart of Christianity, but we also find with the Egyptian Osiris, in certain versions, with the Greek Dionysus, um, we find with the Nordic god Odin, who sacrificed himself. Um, self-impaled from a tree to access the wisdom of the world of the dead and things like that. Um, So death and resurrection myths are very powerful. And and there's a lot of other uh, kind of uh, touchstone symbols that we find that resonate with us as human beings. But it doesn't mean that those myths should be taken literally and i know here i am i'm supposed to be interviewing you and i'm being kind of long-winded so i'll I'll let you chime in on what you think about you know uh religious symbolism and the importance of it even to those who aren't literal believers
1: um yeah uh, i think it's um i mean i was also talking about the this christian atheists um which have got a very, very small following here in the UK. And they're they're kind of like believers, not well they're no, they're not believers, but they're they're followers of Jesus who strip out all the supernatural stuff and concentrate on establishing the kingdom of God as a kind of a, a perfect state of human affairs to be lived up to. Um but also they are really into doing things like going to church every week and continuing with baptisms and you know and even like taking communion and all that sort of stuff so they so i i think like symbolisms are such a huge part of being a human being that there's there seems to be no reason to cut yourself off from them um just because you don't happen to believe uh this or that, um uh, you know, specifically about the the religion in, in question. And I think you know, I think we should probably look to the Jews um in, in terms of this because you get a lot of uh Jewish people who are completely atheist, um, but very, very Jewish in, in in their culture and in their rituals and so forth. And, you know, so I think that's a I think that's a good way for people to sort of aim towards and um and I wonder if, you know, like the Catholic Church um accepted evolution uh what, fifty hundred years ago. I wonder if in five hundred years time or maybe a thousand years' time the Catholic Church will become a Christian atheist and mm-hmm. uh will will um you know keep all the all the um nice buildings and the history and everything but actually sort of say, Oh well yeah it wasn't really actually real <laughs>
0: Well, yeah, I think that um, it's funny when I was kind of a young idealist, I used to wonder uh, if science would somehow end up proving God in a way, because there's all these kind of grand mysteries and revelations that um, come with scientific discovery, like weird things that you find in quantum physics, like uh, quantum uh, Non-locality—the ability of an atom or or an atomic particle to be able to exist in more place at one at, at uh, two places at once and things like that—but the older I get, I- I'm like, no, I think science is just going to keep eroding a- 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 literal belief, and. Um, It's kind of like literalists have to keep stepping further and further backwards into a corner as the floor is eaten out under them because we keep proving that so much of the biblical story just can't be taken uh, literally and um, while still maintaining a rational worldview or accepting uh, established science. And um, I think you bring up a good point with Judaism, because even though Judaism is the mother religion of Christianity, I've just generally speaking have always felt like Judaism is more about tradition, ritual, and family. And there's less emphasis on a literal afterlife or a literal belief in a personal creator. Um, and it's funny, and you'll often find um kind of Jewish uh theists will do the similar dance that kind of progressive learned Christians will sometimes do where like uh one of my favorite people is uh I don't know if it's Volpe or Wolpe. It might be a uh, Rabbi David Wolpe and uh I first learned of him by watching the series called uh, Mysteries of the Bible. Yeah, Uh, yeah, And uh, he would often be a a commentator on the show. And it was kind of mind-blowing later on when I really started to embrace an atheistic worldview where I would see him debate the likes of, like, Christopher Hitchens or Sam Harris. And you can find... um, debates online on YouTube of him debating um, those prominent uh, atheists and others. And you can tell by listening to him that he doesn't seem to believe in a literal, um, personal God in the sense that, say, a fundamentalist Christian would, or doesn't necessarily seem to believe in in an afterlife in the same way a devout Christian would, where, you know, we have this idea of an anthropomorphic angel with like a a pair of bird wings slapped on them. And you're fluttering around the throne of God for uh, all eternity or whatever. Um, and there's this kind of belief in Hebrew thought that we're all little flames that go back to the one flame that is God. And that seems to be this almost poeticized form of pantheism or something, you know? And, uh, but they'll do this little dance where they'll defend believers against atheists and they kind of vaguely defend some no-some poetic notion of god but you can't really pin them down and they don't seem to believe in a uh, afterlife and a personal god in the same way that we think of a christian down in the bible belt doing mm-hmm. And, um, but there's still, which I respect a strong emphasis on tradition and family. And, um, another one of my favorite people, you know, there's, uh, the female comedian, Sarah Silverman, and she's an outspoken atheist, but she's, uh, Jewish in her roots. And she recently spoke out about how she still values the sense of tradition and community that's found in, um, that's found in Judaism. And, uh, yeah, so it doesn't seem to me that, uh, mainstream Judaism really holds on to any fundamental beliefs about a, uh, about a creator and an afterlife. And yet I was kind of puzzled when I, I recently watched, um, it might have been like a TV adaptation of The God Delusion. There was this little BBC, uh, mini series, like kind of documentary series done by uh, and hosted by Richard Dawkins. And he's in England and he's interviewing a rabbi, last name Glock, I think. And there was this kind of Orthodox Jewish community that was so isolated that even though the rabbi had been born and bred in England, he still had a strong, almost um, kind of German or Eastern European accent. And he seemed to embrace the idea of this kind of 6,000-year-old creationist worldview. And he kind of got into this uncomfortable um, confrontation with Dawkins. So it seems like maybe there is still like a small Jewish Orthodox community that does kind of believe in this almost creationist worldview similar to a... um, creationist christian worldview but i i don't really know much about it but maybe they are out there
1: (laughs) Mm. yeah yeah i mean it's similar with um with uh, a few muslims and creationism as well i think that's uh uh, you know they have similar some similar ideas to creationists from christianity and obviously they have a lot in common
0: there's um something you'd probably dig that you should uh look up at some point it's on youtube and i've talked about it a few times on my show and uh it's a debate between two christians actually between william lane craig who Hi. you might be familiar with I am, yes. where um he's one of these theists who he's obviously a very learned and very intelligent guy mm-hmm. but he kind of what I would say irrationally, because it's like he has to believe in in it, or he
1: loses his job.
0: He loses his job, and he loses the core of his worldview, where um, he tries to claim against what I see is the mainstream view of mainstream uh, biblical academia. He holds the view that the gospels are meant to be taken as journalism as eyewitness accounts, when it seems to me that most academics, most biblical scholars say that the Gospels are about trying to convey a higher truth, trying to convey the quote-unquote good news, the Gospel, but they're all tailor-written to meet the needs of the Gospel writer's individual community, and that in the first century, the gospel writers they weren't trying to deceive anyone it's just they had a different approach to writing um they weren't um they weren't obsessed or preoccupied with what we now in, in our modern world view as journalistic um integrity or whatever or literalism they believed that you could use symbolism to tell the story of Jesus Christ, or that you could change the facts to meet the needs of your community. Uh, For instance, the three synoptic gospels have Jesus dying on one day. The gospel of John, more of a contemplative and mystical account, has Jesus dying on a different day. So in John, Jesus isn't eating a Passover meal. He is the Passover meal. He's right. being slaughtered at the same time the Passover lambs are being slaughtered to reinforce the idea of Jesus as the lamb who dies for the sins of the world. And um, and so anyway, um, William Lane Craig debates a fellow believer by the name of Bishop Shelby Spong and Bishop Spong was raised as a kind of evangelical who his mother taught him to believe in the Bible literally, to believe in those tales literally. But through his education, he came to the conclusion that the Gospels are chock full of Jewish symbolism and they're not meant to be taken as eyewitness accounts they're meant to convey most likely the early Christians did literally believe in the resurrection, but they didn't believe that you needed to, um, interpret the story of Jesus literally in order to convey the tale of the resurrection. So we find things like the slaughter of the innocents. The holy family flees into Egypt to escape uh, the wrath of Herod. And this kind of mirrors the infancy tale of Moses. And we find things like Jesus's transfiguration on the mount. And um, this is supposed to symbolize Jesus being the kind of new Moses or the new Elijah. And there's a bunch of kind of uh, early Jewish symbolism in the Gospels. And so it's kind of weird. I view both men as being wrong because on the one hand, uh, I think it's irrational that Craig believes in the Gospels literally, and that he uses them as proof of a literal resurrection. And on the other hand, I view um, Shelby's, uh, Bishop Shelby uh, Spong's worldview being flawed because he believes that the gospels are just symbolism. And yet at the end of the day, he still believes in a resurrection. And yet he doesn't believe in a literal resurrection. He believes in like a spiritual resurrection, whatever the hell that means, and still calls himself a Christian. Mm. And um, it's just like one of my favorite biblical scholars is Dominic Crossan. Oh, yes. And um, love that guy, love him. And one of my favorite things he said is that either the gospel writers or the early Christians were so, sm- were so uh, stupid that they believed in the gospels lit- uh, literally and were so smart that we know that take them figuratively, or they intended them to be taken figuratively, and we're so dumb, we insist on taking them literally. And I think that's such a beautiful, brilliant statement. It says a lot about our desire, the desire of modern Christians to take things literally. But at the end of the day, Dominic Crossan's gotten in trouble for insisting that also the resurrection wasn't literal and that Jesus's body may even <laughs> have been consumed by wild dogs. Right. Yeah. And, um, and so the problem I have with people like that, I'm like, yeah, you're almost on my team. You view the stuff as not being literal. You don't believe in it literally. But at the end of the day, you're still a Christian and you still believe in some kind of resurrection, and then you have a lot of Christians who have the cafeteria Catholic approach. It's like, okay, I don't believe in the Garden of Eden story because I embrace the concept of evolution, and I know there's all sorts of ape-like hominids running around. I know the world wasn't made in seven days. I know human beings have been around for let's say in between i don't know 80 to a 80,000 to a quarter of a million years old you know uh, it differs depending on which uh, anthropologist or which uh, scientist um you ask but our species has been around for thou- thousands and thousands of years at least and uh christianity is a mere 2000 years old our species might be as old as a quarter of a million years old and um so you'll have christians who say okay there there probably wasn't literally an Adam of Adam and Eve um there may not have literally been um a parting of the Red Sea. There may not have literally been a tower of Babel, but they still cling to um the literal belief in the resurrection because without it, you lose your axis Monday Monday or Monday, you lose the crux of your whole belief system. Christianity goes crashing to the ground. So you'll have people that are rational enough to not believe literally in all these biblical miracle stories, but they'll still cling to the resurrection because without it, you lose your linchpin. Um, And so I have problems with all those viewpoints because at the end of the day, I don't know whether or not there's a higher power. I strongly doubt it because I don't see the evidence. But, But I'm... Kind of a strong atheist when it comes to any of man man's man-made belief systems. When it comes to, I'm sorry, I'm getting so excited, I'm stumbling over my tongue. I'm an atheist when it comes to any of man's um, man-made religious texts. We can look at the Judeo-Christian Bible. We see how it has its roots in Mesopotamian polytheism and Canaanite religion. We know that. The Noah story is predated by the Epic of Gilgamesh. Um, and uh, we can see all these roots that go deep into uh, Mesopotamian polytheism. And we can see how when we look at the Bible, and it's really quite awkward, we have these things that scholars call doublets, right? We have um, two accounts of the Noah story in Genesis, which, which disagree or contradict each other about how many animals are to be brought aboard the ark. We have two different accounts of creation, one right on the heels of the other, that um, have the order in which man and animals are made reversed. Mm-hmm. And uh, we have different names used for God throughout the Bible, and it seems to be what's known as the uh, documentary hypothesis, okay. that we we had a fractured Jewish community and different... Um, different regions use different words for uh, the name of God. And certain communities view themselves as the first or the second. And we can see this emphasis on the first and second son, you know, within the, the Hebrew Bible. Um, so we can see it's painfully man-made. It seems painfully yeah. obvious. And I'm like, how do believers believe in any of this literally? and if you don't believe in all of it literally but only some of it how do you reconcile that rationally but here i am uh monopolizing the conversation again so if you have anything to chime in on about that meandering stream of consciousness i'll i'll let you chime in now
1: um yeah no i i totally agree with um with what you're saying um I think uh we I think it must be really hard for anybody who believes to be um to be learned about what the Bible actually says, and it's one of the kind of things that I wanted to present in this play was I wanted to put a version of Jesus on stage in which he's seen as believing in other gods you know like a lot of the Jews at that time did, and so you know even if it even though it might seem quite shocking to us, it was an important scene to write because it was like, right, I want to, um, you know, we all know that Jesus was an exorcist of some kind, but you know, in, in my play, he's the one who gets exercised, um, as he's coming into contact with all this stuff for the first time. I, I should probably say Jesus is only 15 years old in my play. Um, and
0: so the, um, not to cut you off, but that's interesting. So does some of this, uh, this narrative take place in what we call those lost or missing years?
1: Right. Yeah, totally. Um, so it all takes place in, in, in that time. Um, and it takes place you know years before uh, he became a pupil of John the Baptist. And so the kind of the, the fictional story of the play is he's an outcast, bastard, illegitimate child, who um, is taken under the wing of this charismatic wandering Jewish preacher, and then this this preacher is the one who tells him about the the Christ angel and this new way of looking at God that the Greeks have brought into the Holy Land, or that the Egyptians have brought into the Holy Land. It's a bit that bit's a, a little bit vague, deliberately so, and but previously to that point, uh, Jesus has been brought up with this idea because it's been surrounded by him it, it like everybody thinks that he's a, a, a bastard child that he doesn't have a, a proper father and Jesus, and joseph is not his real father that's what the whole of nazareth thinks nazareth thinks oh if i could Amen. chime in
0: on that sure. sorry to uh interrupt right. but a, a couple of questions are coming to me because yeah, uh sure. as i told you i started reading the script yesterday and i was wondering um the idea of Jesus as a bastard—I I, know—I uh, don't. I'm not sure of the veracity of, of it or not, but I think I've heard even. I, I think some mainstream biblical scholars posit that there could have been a chance that he was the product of rape. As offensive as that uh, might sound to the ears of some believers, um, at the hands of a, a Roman soldier. Yeah. Uh, so does that kind of play into that?
1: Uh, yeah. Um, there's it's it's left undefined um it's we get the idea that mary definitely wasn't a virgin all her life um and we get the idea that jesus's dad wasn't jewish and that ah i got you so kind of implied yeah it's (laughs) kind of
0: implied right um
1: what, what what i try to get across is that he doesn't look like joseph and everybody has always suspected this about him and so, it, so, and I wonder, you know, even if the the Virgin Mary story is true, what would he have looked like? <laughs> would he have looked exactly like Mary? Because how can you, ha- if you know, if you or would he, you know? Oh, that's a good
0: point. Like, if yeah. um, <laughs> what would his
1: DNA look like? I mean, unless he would look just like Mary, um, in terms of the face, perhaps. But anyway, so the, but the scene that, the parthenogenesis.
0: Scene that- I think that's what Christopher Hitchens used to talk about parthenogenesis some kind of fancy scientific term for a being that physically gives birth uh, by itself Uh, Uh, supposedly sometimes uh, snakes will do it Uh, but uh, I think uh, Christopher Hitchens used to say it kind of sarcastically saying that maybe (laughs) Jesus was the product of parthenogenesis but uh, (laughs) I just
1: like he's uh, there's a scene where the scene where he's excised by the wandering preacher who tells him about the christ angel that that scene he uh there's it's it's sort of revealed that he's believes himself to be possessed by the the the, the god baal or baal oh right the Canaanite so, god uh, so it's it's all sort of tied in but i definitely wanted to put that on stage and say look you know everybody knows that jews of this period weren't strictly monotheist by any stretch of the imagination so maybe Jesus had different ideas about God growing up, or about gods growing up, and uh, you know that's one of the things that 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 we see.
0: Yeah, would have been a real kind of cosmopolitan environment because you have the the Middle East was occupied by the Roman Empire, but also you had the Babylonian influence. We know about the Babylonian captivity. And, uh, of course, uh, there's the Hellenistic influence because of the conquest of uh, Alexander the Great. And I started to read uh, your script and you even uh, you mentioned the presence of the statue of uh, Augustus. And um, so, there, yeah, there would have been all these different uh, influences and one thing I was going to ask you about you right in the the preface of the uh play you mentioned a feminist uh biblical scholar was is her last name Shaberg or
1: Yeah, Shayberg I thought it was but I'm not exactly Oh, I'm not, sure
0: I not I've never heard it like. before you so <laughs> All
1: right, well. in 1987 she wrote this um account of a feminist reading of the uh biblical um infancy stories and the the virgin birth and so forth and she made this uh quite a convincing argument on certainly in, in the gospel of matthew that g that um geez the, the gospel of the author of matthew is basically has inherited this illegitimacy tradition and is trying to spin it in such a way that he goes as far as saying everything but jesus was a bastard and mary was um was raped or something along those lines and uh he what was it there's uh, i can't remember all the evidence the points of evidence that point towards it now but what was it um yeah that's the big one is that matthew which is probably the earlier gospel than than luke matthew never actually says i don't think he ever uses the word virgin or it doesn't seem to be Definitely there, if you know what I mean. Oh, is it it's like, Alma? It's, sort of it's not definitely, definitely there. The Aramaic, a
0: lot of scholars have brought up um, that there's the Aramaic word Alma, mm. which um, it's kind of controversial because some say it could refer to a young woman of marrying age or just a young maiden, but not ne- necessarily a virgin. And I've heard some apologists try to make excuses and say that, well, a, a young girl of marrying age uh, probably wouldn't consummate until she was married, so it's almost synonymous with virgin. But, you know, other scholars say, well, it, no, it, it's it, it basically means a young girl but doesn't necessarily mean a virgin. And, and that's supposedly the original Aramaic word um, that right. we find in the text.
1: And the way it's put in the script... In the sorry, in this, not in the script, in the text is, uh, but before they came together, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man and did not want to expose her to public disgrace. He had a mind to divorce her quietly. So, right there, just found with child through the Holy Spirit. Now, the Holy Spirit does lots of like normal things in the world. <laughs> um, does like you know, it's apparently the Holy Spirit that was, um, responsible for the correct orthodox formation of the canon you know like scribes choosing the right passages and stuff nothing necessarily supernatural about that um so, you know i mean the, nothing necessarily out of the ordinary in terms of nature about that so there's a big argument that jane Sheberg Schae- made for wow. the the illegitimacy narrative being just you know if you scratch the surface you can you can um sort of see this the the this possible earlier tradition and underneath the the new testament texts and they um it does seem when you read it all together it does seem like they're trying to cover something up
0: well that's really interesting because um you've kind of enlightened me because i never really thought about it in those lines before that the holy spirit could be seen as a kind of, um, source of inspiration or, or an explanation for certain, um, for lack of a better word, natural events, but perhaps wasn't, um, uh, responsible for miracles as the, uh, the conception of a divine child, you know, would be a miracle, uh, or, um, you know, uh, an immaculate conception would be a miracle. So it could be that they were saying the Holy Spirit was responsible for what was an all-too-worldly conception, in a sense. Too-worldly indeed, yeah. um,
1: (laughs) uh, The name of the book is um, The Illegitimacy of Jesus, Feminist Theological Interpretations of the Infancy Narratives. Um, And yeah it just goes through it goes through all the jewish sources as well and there's a lot of jewish um sources that talk about uh you know the, the, the there's one for instance called the toldot not sure how that's t- how to pronounce it but the toldot yeshu which is th- the history of jesus um and it was written by medieval jews and they um they say that he was an illegitimate child as well so i think imagine jews have probably been saying it for a long time but it's obviously not something that we've had uh you know just not it's not a topic of polite discussion in in our culture as such
0: right um, Uh, no it's funny um i still i have to admit i still haven't finished uh reading it uh reza aslan's book uh zealot um where he talks about uh the idea of Jesus might have been more of a militant figure than we like to, um, think of. And that certain, uh, biblical passages that we take as being figurative, like I have come not to bring a peace," I I I've come not to bring peace, but I have come with a sword or come to bring a sword or something like that, that those might've been, um, meant more literally than uh, believers would like to think. And we know that there's a rebellious um, movement at the time. There was like the Sicarii, the dagger men. And uh, as you would expect, there was kind of a guerrilla movement in response to occupation by an outside force. In this case, the the Roman occupation. Um, But that's not really what I wanted to touch on. There was something he mentioned that reminded me of what you're talking about. He discusses how first century Palestine would have been, as he puts it, a wash in, mess- in messianic energy, and that there would have been a lot of wandering people who were kind of suffering under the delusion that they were messianic figures, and Jesus would have been the uh, only one. Sorry about that, people uh, violating the sanctity of my studio but uh but anyway i think it was probably uh, sometime after the fall of the temple uh we eventually had um bar kokba who was another supposed um messiah but more of like a militant messiah that the jews were more traditionally expecting and uh unfortunately he was crushed by the roman empire too But supposedly there were these people, other miracle workers in the first century. I think there was someone named Honi, the circle drawer. And also miracles were attributed to um, important people. Even um, like I think the Roman emperor Vespasian was said to have uh, performed miracles, even laying on of hands.
1: Something I learned very recently was that they referred to each other as gods, like on a really casual basis. So, you know, even people who were just like particularly good at medicine or, you know, learned in some fashion or other, they'd actually say, oh, yeah, that man's a God. And they would they would sort of literally believe it as well, because I was always brought up with the idea that, that at least, you know, the Jews had God. And then there was Caesar sort of claiming he was God. But really, um monothe uh, th- there wasn't monotheism in this period. It was it was mon- monolatry, which was that my god is better than all the other gods and is superior to to the other gods so you right from the start in in the new testament times you can see um the, this competition going on between the different gods of the world and um in in the play that's reflected in this in uh like you're saying with the uh the cruci with the the messianic um leaders of the time there's in the first act there's a, there's a uh, well there's actually a, a reference to, not a reference, a, a scene where Judas the Galilean uh, marches on Sepphoris and is completely wiped out by the Romans and is actually crucified as well. Um, and I wanted to try and write that scene as if this is the point where the Roman gods are seemingly won. So all the Jews are sort of like... Uh, one, wondering, like, well, maybe we should give up Yahweh. You know, maybe we should just become like Romans, and and worship uh, the, the 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 emperor or that their, their whole pantheon instead. That's funny though,
0: because that when you were mentioning um, the idea that believing your god was better doesn't necessarily exclude the existence of those other gods
1: i think it actually precludes it is that the right word it actually includes it 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 actually presupposes it because yeah they 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 wouldn't there's all these other numerous numerous uh, mentions in the old testament and uh, across other places as well where it's clear that uh, yahweh is for israel palestine judea whatever and then then there's all the other gods, exist right? You had like national gods. God. Yahweh national was national God. gods, indeed. Yeah. So it, it really, really gets confusing when it's um uh, a, a uh, an imperial power imposing its own uh, theology and its own government on on a on a smaller on a smaller power. But that is another one of the things that I wanted to try and write into the play because I really wanted to get you know this like you're saying a bit John Dominic Cross and kind of. Um, how the how the theological relates to the political so so uh, uh, so perfectly in in those times there wasn't really a division between politics and religion as we have now you know they were all all the same thing and that's
0: uh, a so. as I said, that's a great point too and uh, one thing that always frustrates me with believers is they kind of overlook that in a way especially when it comes to like eschatology or like end end uh, times thinking. Because um usually uh, apocalyptic literature referred to the time the people were living in. Like you had um uh what was it? The Book of Revelation, which as I understand it, almost didn't make it into the official canon, but there was a mistake in uh there was an instance of mistaken identity. People thought it was John the apostle, but it was really John in exile by the name of John of Patmos, who wrote, uh, Revelation. And it's chock full of lurid imagery, imagery, as we all know, the crazy sea beasts and all these grotesque monsters and a lamb with seven eyes, but supposedly chock full of political symbolism that refers to Roman oppression and even, um, the great uh, B-666 is supposedly a reference to uh, Nero, who was yeah. infamous for his um, cruel treatment of uh, early Christians. And uh, so apocalyptic literature usually wasn't referring to what's going to happen two millennia down the road. It was about the political injustices and the hopes of the time. And even people thought... That Jesus was supposed to be returning shortly in their own lifetime, and that's how it's often referred to in uh, New Testament texts. And of course, we know people are still waiting. He didn't show up. You know what I mean?
1: But well, there's the there's the there's the passage where Jesus says, "I tell you that the, the, there are those in who stand before me who will not taste death before the kingdom of, of God comes," and that's the, one of the very earliest passages. And you know and, and and um obviously that's you know so (laughs) jesus is is proven wrong right there and then you know um but again that i mean that's that's a part of the play as well it's like this the 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 teacher of jesus in it this this uh, uh fictional teacher called eli and he's he comes along and he's preaching this The end is coming, you know, it's very, very soon now. Give all your stuff away. You're not going to need it anymore. Do the best you can with your money right now and just give it to the poor because God is going to intervene soon and he's going to bring his, uh, the Christ angel is going to swoop down and destroy the the Roman Empire and, uh, and all this stuff. And so that's really where I wanted to get this, Um, you know, I thought, like, if I can tell this story through the eyes of Jesus, like, if I can tell the story of basically the historical jesus and the the historical idea of the christ angel and uh, eschatology and all that sort of stuff if i can tell it through the eyes of a 14 year old bastard child then maybe i can make the story re- you know really hit home and yeah, uh, uh, i so think that, it's hope
0: anyway. i think it's fascinating that um you chose to focus on a younger jesus because it deals it gives you a chance to explore um the formative influences, and I like how you talked about in your play, uh Jesus is aware that he doesn't look like Joseph, so like all young people, there must be this struggle towards finding one's own identity and wrestling with all these different uh influences and factors and uh and um so i think that's a really poignant idea of the idea of a young person coming to this revelatory idea that they may be divine you know <laughs>
1: yeah uh, but hopefully-, hopefully it's done in such a way that you know you kind of you see it you kind of see the seams and the joints you know you kind of see that oh well you know it's not real because of xyz etc but you kind of see how it how it might have been real to someone but like you're talking about with the in, in terms of the influences i think biblical scholars have got this thing called um what is it the criteria criterion of embarrassment and so it's this idea that anything that's embarrassing to christianity um must be true because otherwise christians would have deleted it and you know
0: oh that's you know, william lane craig totally yes, um yes. something that makes the religion look bad well it, it must be true because yeah, I mean, why else
1: it's, it's a do- it's a dodgy criterion for a start anyway but it's a it's a good place to start for this play i've found it's a good place to start in fiction because the first time that we see the historical life and life and flesh jesus in history in the gospel of mark is is him turning up to his sinner's baptism you know, it's he's coming along, and it's saying John the Baptist is in the desert predicting the coming son uh, the coming, the predicting the coming of the Messiah, and he's baptized in sinners. And then, then in the next verse, Jesus is baptized, and so why, <laughs> why did Jesus have to be baptized as a sinner, and why didn't John the Baptist recognize him and all the rest of it as well? But so right there, there's been just reams and reams of scholarly uh, interest written about about that episode. But that's kind of like where I wanted to come from with the play, because I wanted to say like well what if Jesus did go to a baptism for sinners as a sinner, what was he atoning for? What was his um his uh uh you know, what what did he think he got wrong? Because there's also that passage in Mark where Jesus says someone comes up to Jesus and says, What must I do to receive eternal life? good teacher and he says don't call me good there's only one thing that's good um why call me good sorry uh there's only th- there's only one thing that's good and that's god so that's where the, the impetus for the whole play actually came from was uh you know the trying to figure out this what was the one thing that jesus did that um led him to to want to atone for it and in the play uh it's a bit of a spoiler alert here but the one thing he did is he stuck to the Jewish law when he knew he shouldn't have. Maybe I won't say any more than that, but uh, (laughs) that's the, that's the crux of it.
0: Well, that's really interesting. Uh, I think that's probably another thing I I really haven't thought of before is why would he have felt the need to be baptized if he was kind of uh, possessing of a perfect divine nature? Um, And it's a good question. Apologist might say something like, um, being anointed by a blessed prophet somehow marked the beginning of his messianic yeah. career or something like that. But it, for some reason, it called to mind, like re- earlier I talked about how some Christians may not believe in, say, uh, some of the Genesis miracles or events, literally. Like they may not believe in um, Adam and Eve and the Garden of Eden, literally. But in Christian thought, one of the main reasons for christ's sacrifice on the cross was to redeem man for original sin but if adam and eve never really existed and the fall in the garden was only a metaphor then what was jesus dying for Mm -hmm. you know what i mean
1: um i think it bloated all out of the water really i i don't really think you can be a orthodox christian whatever that means um and and believe in in evolution at the same time i I I think maybe you could say that he was conquering death in some way it's like I think the eastern church has a bit more of an emphasis on his conquering of death rather than his redeeming of sins and so you know maybe they could go with that one for a bit but to me it's all it's all real that I mean this when i was writing this play i was um i had to make a lot of choices in terms of you know like did the real Jesus say this or is this just a fictional Jesus of Christians years later but in the end I kind of chose to base it around this western idea of of Jesus that we've that we've all been brought up with so um, you know there may be things in it which for instance that the woman the story of the woman caught in adultery which is probably one of the best Jesus stories there is um, that's wasn't a, a, in the canon until the 400th for the fourth century, so that may be completely made up. Um, yeah, that's a um,
0: mind blower, isn't it? Because I, I yeah. first learned that a year or two ago from. Uh, I took interest in Barty Airman. Yep. yep. And uh, and he's an another guy that uh, from the start he was he was religious. He was brought up uh, very religious. May have even have been a lay clergyman at one point or something biblical scholar, and it was just the fact that his open minded study of biblical text led him to a conclusion that it's essentially man made and yeah and yeah, he was talking about that that's one of the most poignant and important New Testament stories, Jesus and the woman stoned for adultery or whatever, and it wasn't added until centuries later. And uh, maybe the invention of a scribe, and uh, I, I wish I could have a camera that I could take around and te- bring it to churches and see the reaction on faces when you say that to people, <laughs> you know, because that's one of the most poignant Christian tales.
1: Absolutely, yeah. I mean, and then you know you've got people like Dominic Crossan who say that um the, the, this is, that's one of the things I don't understand about Dominic Crossan. In fact, is that he says that the The Good Samaritan is just a parable, it's not real, but I imagine the Good Samaritan to have been based on a real story that Jesus just somehow inherited, uh, or the author of Luke just inherited. I guess one of the things I'm trying to do in the play is explore not really just the origin of goodness, but the origin of badness as well, and the origin of sin, and one of the reasons I was able to write this play, as I have, is because I kind of centred it around Christianity. Even though it's a, the big part of it is Jewish, and one of the big problems, in, the big problem in Christianity, of course, is sin. And then, uh, so I was like, "Well, what's the what's the sin that uh, that someone? What well, what sin would make someone want to become a divinely appointed te- teacher to change the world?" And if you read the play, or if people go and see the play, I think they'll. I think they'll be uh, impressed with the answer, hopefully, because it's quite a shocking answer. And uh, to even see her on stage would be, you know, um, disorientated in some sense.
0: Uh, it's like I don't want to prod you too much on it because you don't want. I don't want you to give it away. I don't even know what it is, but I kind of have the chills just the way you're talking about it. It sounds like something big. Thank you. And uh, I know there was something else I wanted to talk to you about. I might totally be confusing things, but I, I was going to ask you if you were familiar with um, a kind of controversial scholar named uh, Richard Carrier. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Cause there's this whole uh, school of thought uh, called uh, mythicism or the, uh, the scholars are referred to as mythicists because they posit the idea that there may not even have been a historical Jesus and or that he might be some kind of amalgam type or composite character and um, I could totally be getting things wrong because I probably don't know as much about the mythicists as I should, but Richard Carrier talks about how in kind of um I don't know if it's necessarily Jewish mysticism or kind of semi-Jewish mysticism that's mixed with other traditions but the name of Jesus or yeshua um goes back far beyond before the birth of Christ and that there's kind of references to this kind of divine or mystical figure name Yeshua that predates Jesus either even, even though Yeshua would be Aramaic or Hebrew for uh Joshua Jesus um and that I was wondering if your Christ angel figure has something to do with these earlier Yeshua um, concepts about this kind of divine figure or am i totally off the mark what is this christ angel figure and i was wondering if you could tell us something about that
1: no you're totally on point for it in fact um it's okay i'll see what i can do with the scholarship the angle of this now carrier believes that uh jesus the name jesus was worshipped as an entity before the life of the historical before the purported life of the historical jesus so right from the start he believes that uh and and G- the name jesus or joshua refers uh re- re- translates as yahweh is salvation or yahweh saves so right from the start there's this very very special name that exists in jewish thought and exists with previous jewish philosophers and stuff who um who are really into this idea of, um, of, uh, what is it? Of a, um, uh, a divine image of God. Like it says in Genesis, we were created in the image of God. Now, this begs the question then, what was the image of God, right? So you have God, and then you've got an image of God. And in their way of thinking, um, these people um, interpreted the image of God to be the very first thing that God ever created and through which everything else was created. So this sort of um, divine uh, emanation or or something like this and through that everything else was created and it, it was like the very first born firstborn over all creation and you can see this this in the epistles as well. The epistles got a big emphasis on this pre existence of Jesus. In my um in my story I had to find a way to separate the historical Jesus on the ground from the entity that everybody is talking about worshiping as well they sort of worship it, but that's that's a matter of controversy for the story. So in my version of the story and in some other scholar sh- scholars, uh, in some other schools of thought, there's this idea of uh, the Christ angel. And that was to help me uh, differentiate between the Jesus on the ground, the earthly Jesus, and this heavenly identity, which is the first thing that God ever created, and which, um, and which is what may be referred to, in my play at least, as the one like a son of man the one the thing that looks like a son of man that looks like a a human being but is in fact an angel and um the word christ means um anointed like an anointed by god so sort of chosen by god so it could also translate in my play at least it could also cho- translate as chosen angel the the angel through which god did everything and in my version of the story which is similar to the mark and version of the mark mark's gospel is that the christ spirit the christ angel enters into jesus um at his baptism um but in my version um the christ angel is uh is waiting (laughs) basically waiting in the sky to be delivered into the Put into the body of a perfect man who completely obeys the law in all ways, and Jesus, by doing something that you think he comes to regret later, does obey the law in all ways, and that's the reason that the Christ angel enters his body, although that's the way he sees it at least.
0: Wow, that is powerful stuff, and does that tie into the uh because i think you mentioned something about the, the word too when i was re- beginning to read the play kind of tie into the idea of the logos mm. or the word well, the made logos flesh It's
1: more of a greek thing and there's a uh, there's a character in it who represents the one of the subplots of the play is that a greek scribe has come into the holy land to make a copy of the jewish scriptures a bit similar to how they made the um what's the name of it septuagint. the septuagint that's the one yes um so this greek uh sort of a tourist dilettante um comes into the uh into the holy land and he's investigating it and he brings with him these these ideas of the logos and the and the philonic um the Phil- philosophy of Philo and stuff like that so that that gets mixed up with the with the Christ angel as well the logos yeah
0: it it seems like uh this notion that you get from uh carrier about the the, this kind of christ angel notion almost flirts or maybe is influenced by i don't know like uh well probably couldn't be influenced by gnosticism if it occurred before um christianity but maybe it, it has certain elements akin to gnosticism almost like that belief that the god of the bible was actually not the true god or right, kind yeah. of corrupt and then it's um this perfect kind of um deity th- that comes after is actually um well Christ is an avatar of that being and not of the original god or the god of the bible Something yeah. like that, right? So that's
1: in there as well, actually. I mean, have yeah, I mean, basically it's been the result of three years of just intense, uh, radical Jesus research, and throw them all in a pot and stir them up. And basically, one, one of the other, the subplot of the of the Greek scribe visiting the Holy Land at the time of Jesus, uh, and he meets Jesus as well. But you know, the, one, that's one of the other things about the play is nobody realizes he's the Messiah. So it's almost like a uh, what's it? A bit like the Gospel of Mark in the sense that. Well, nobody knows who he really is, but so there's a lot of dramatic irony in that. But by the end of uh, the play, the the Greek scholar has come up with this idea of the Gnostic Demiurge, you know, the um, and that that would be the the god who, you know, he he so he believes by the end of the play that the god who created the world in the Old Testament is uh, a lower god, than the, and there's actually a, a higher god above that one, and he's the true source of the christ angel the true source of, of pureness and life and love and etc etc and so that so in fact the play are, the play ends on an argument between jesus and the greek scholar um, about who the real god is
0: oh uh, yeah because the demiurge seems, is responsible for the material world which is seen as the material world is corrupt or evil um yeah. I think that there's the early church father uh- uh seen as heretical now, but marcion and yep. I, I believe uh Marcion wanted to pretty much uh cull out everything uh, that was Jewish or smacked of the old testament and he he thought that the God of the Old Testament was evil or distasteful or something like yes, that
1: yes he did and that he was the first person who came up with a New Testament canon as well and said this is the basis of what christians should believe and there may have been loads and loads of gnostic churches and uh, in scholarship apparently everybody used to think that you know christianity started out with just one perfect version and then heresies followed after that but almost nobody agrees with that version of events these days now it's um everybody who's you know like a serious scholar recognizes that it at its very inception there were you know maybe uh at least five or six different versions of Christianity right from the get go yeah,
0: and it makes sense because you have all these different kind of fractured communities, each one th- each that that's has uh gospels that are kind of customized for their specific needs, and then I'm sure there's different kinds of uh, spiritual influences from other traditions, getting into some of those sects or communities. And it makes sense that you're going to have these varied or conflicting um, takes.
1: Mm, just the fact that we've got four Gospels to begin with is interesting, <laughs> because, you know, you know it's, um, you know, the reason they're all called the Gospel according to so-and-so is because there was originally just one Gospel. You know, each community would have just had like one version of this text. And then, as the churches grew and grew, and you know, came together more, they realized, oh, we've actually got four different versions. Well, which one are we going to go with? We'll just put the Gospel according to whoever seems to be whoever tradition says is the author. Yeah,
0: and then we don't even know who that is because supposedly there's a tradition of almost as a um as a gesture of tribute or honor, you, you would give uh a gospel or a work the name of another individual that but the name of the the individual isn't necessarily the person who wrote the uh the
1: work Mm, yeah and it's like it's so surprising that nobody ever ever seems to well biblical scholars do i guess but um you know Mark never refers to himself as oh well I'm I'm Mark and I was uh, the assistant for Peter and then Matthew says I remember the first time I met Jesus it was when I was tax- collecting taxes or whatever and it's just you know it's it's so they're so plainly not written by by eyewitness uh eyewitnesses and uh, it's painful when people try to make out that they are it's
0: maybe the closest I, I don't know I'm kind of um I don't know if I'm talking out of uh sorts here but maybe luke luke was a gentile um so maybe uh luke wrote luke but i, I don't even know he
1: never identifies himself as luke that's the thing um and uh and right from the start as well he says there have been other witnesses and there have been other accounts and i'm going to give you the, the the true one but not once does he say uh, my name's luke and i was assistant to um to paul and here here's the real deal um of, of course paul says uh that he was he was paul quite a lot and i think that's probably the most believable thing in in terms of authorship in the new in the new testament because then you've also got a lot of things from peter and from john and they're they're even less convincing um so yeah it's it's a minefield really a fascinating minefield but it is
0: And then there's, um, I'm sure I can tell, um, just by having this conversation with you that you're very well informed on the subject matter and that, so you probably already know about the, uh, the Q gospel, which is a theoretical gospel that is supposedly probably a collection of sayings that the canonical, uh, gospel writers drew from, or at least some of them, um, Because we have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, but I believe um, Mark is supposed to be the oldest, right? And uh, then, what is it, Matthew, I think, drew from Mark, and both of them probably drew from the uh, hypothetical Q, I think, as it is.
1: Yeah, and then John didn't like any of them, and he came along and wrote his own version.
0: Yeah, which is has a completely different flavor than the synoptics. And as I said, it even has Jesus dying on a different day. Mm. And then there's the gospel, the Gnostic Gospel of Thomas, which is kind of like a wise a collection of the wise sayings of Jesus, which I think they they think might also have a connection to Q, possibly or something like yeah,
1: that. Yeah, I think it's I think that's a bit more. Um nobody really it's it's a hard one to call really um some people argue that it's that
0: there's it's not a lot of supernatural stuff in in uh the gospel of thomas but it does seem to mirror some of the sayings in the uh the synoptics i think oh, yeah.
1: or... and it yeah, it's fantastic as well i really like the, the gospel of thomas i think it's very i think all good um i think <laughs> I'd like to see a version of the New Testament with it with it added. I, know, I suppose there must be, uh, um, but you know, like a a, a a um a version that's more widely distributed with the Gospel of Thomas at the back of it. Yeah, that'd be nice. And that, remi- and, it's funny I
0: got... and, that remi- and it's funny I got really upset, not necessarily as a non-believer, but uh, and it takes a lot to get me upset, but as someone with a love of um biblical scholarship and, and uh, a love of religious history. Speaking of Fox News, because I mentioned them earlier, I think th- the guy's name, um, I forget his his uh, first name, last name, is uh, John Kasich. John Kasich, I think it is. He was an anchor for Fox News, and he's now, I believe, a, a sitting politician. I-, I forget which office he holds, but it was on the heels of the discovery of the gospel of Judas. And uh, remember at first people weren't sure if it was authentic. Now I believe the, the viewpoint is that it most likely is authentic, authentic in the sense that it's ancient, you yeah. know? And um, he was quite upset on television and he said something like, when are people going to s- stop coming up with this crap, all these different gospel. And I was thinking to myself, I'm like, you don't have to believe it. You don't have to say it's canonical, but geez, it's it's an ancient document. At least show it the respect that it deserves as a piece of antiquity. And you don't have to, as, as a believing Christian, you don't have to embrace it on the same level as the synoptics or the canonical gospels. You don't have to embrace it at all, but at least concede that it's Ancient and it might have some value for scholars. You know what I mean? It's sometimes the ignorance or the um the the kind of fear that's shown by believers can be quite distasteful as someone that values um a kind of this might sound corny, but a search for empirical truth, or who wants to really get at um what it what is or isn't true with, you know, just take your blinders off and let's see where the truth leads us. Sometimes believers can seem ah, so fearful or ignorant. I I don't know.
1: You know, I definitely agree. Um, I mean, it's a... I I think, I suppose the reason for that just coming back a little to what I was saying earlier is the fact that, you know, they've already got four Gospels, (laughs) you know. They don't want one more to give you this, like, you know, another another range of headaches i mean i always think that um you know i've had this conversation you know if you have a conversation with an evangelical christian and say to them what's your favorite gospel invariably they say oh the gospel of john but then if you say well what's what's your least favorite gospel and they you know they won't answer um but um if if you press them i'm sure they would say well it's the gospel of mark because the gospel of mark jesus is completely secretive he's extremely human and there's no clear path to salvation in the gospel of mark a lot of it doesn't make any sense there's no resurrection narrative uh, appearances at the very end and there's no um uh there's it's all about being a disciple for jesus so you know yeah oh yeah they and i think the
0: scribes rewrote the end of it too because uh it it, it originally ends with an empty tomb and something about how they were afraid. It ends on this very somber, ominous note.
1: To any Christian who, you know, has issues with such and such, is go back and read the Gospel of Mark and read and just try and figure out the Gospel of Mark because I don't believe you can actually do that. I mean, you know, I don't suppose you have to because you can just believe the other Gospels. But, you know, if you're serious about wanting to find out what the, earliest christian the gospel of jesus was all about then go and figure that out that's my challenge anyway
0: and it's funny you know sometimes um just shows how we're all susceptible to peer pressure to some degree maybe i'll listen to like a william lane craig or someone who's a perhaps well-spoken but nevertheless devout believer uh, you know a highly educated believer or theologian and I'll start to say, am I the crazy one? And I'm like, <laughs> maybe something really did happen. I'm like, well, you know, you have this point in time in the first century where all of a sudden everyone starts believing that this guy rose from the dead. Maybe something really did happen. And then I kind of bring myself back around and center myself again. I remind myself about some of the things we've been talking about, about how early Christianity borrows from other traditions, how there are purported other miracle workers and messiahs walking around, how even Roman emperors had miracles attributed to them and things like that. Um, but it is kind of, uh, yeah, it's funny though, but at the end of the day, I don't know what they hang their hat on. Cause when you really analyze the situation with open eyes, uh, and break it down, I don't know how anyone can uh, believe in the resurrection, but I guess then it's a matter of uh, faith. But uh, uh, often people like to have their cake and eat it too. You say it, faith by definition means believing in what can't be proven. And yet people like William Lane Craig will try to give you all this evidence why they believe in what they believe. And yet the evidence is kind of shoddy.
1: Hmm. Oh definitely. Um it's yeah it's a strange one to me. Um I think people generally tend to believe and the actual nuts and bolts of the story, the resurrection even, the virgin birth, the slaughter of the infants, the walking on the water, the etcetera etcetera, absolutely everything. That that's really just window dressing I think. That's just the trimmings. Of uh, of of Christianity, of spirituality, of religion, it, or what, whatever you want to call it in general, Pe- believers get themselves tied up in knots over all those things. Especially when they talk, talk about interpreting them as uh, figurative or as symbolic or whatnot. Um, to me, I don't think that uh, even though they 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 resolutely stick to a lot of details and um, resolutely defend their cases right from the start (laughs) that makes me um extremely suspicious of them i think one of the things that i I mean i was brought up a christian i went to a church school but one of the things that kind of convinced me that it wasn't real was this this huge emphasis on the nature of belief you know it's like well you've got to like especially with the gospel of john you've got to believe that's the most important thing why are you making such a fuss about belief (laughs) If it was real, it would be real, you know.
0: It's bizarre, isn't? it Because you have to kind of be conditioned or trained how to believe yeah. without evidence.
1: Think about thing, and I've not seen a production of Peter Pan, but I think there's this uh, there's this state, uh, scene, isn't there, where it's like if everybody believes, right? Bringing her
0: back to life by believing.
1: And I think that's basically what's going on. And um, uh,
0: um, maybe if we believe hard enough he really did rise from the dead or, yeah. yeah
1: well i think that's what that's what's going on in their heads at least and then but then i also remember this version of of um i think it was a comic book or something i can't remember it years and i've just thought of it now years and years ago where there's this version of someone puts on a version of um peter pan and, and nobody believes hard enough and, and Tinkerbell remains dead <laughs> so i think that's probably a bit closer to the truth
0: Oh, man. Yeah, and it's, it kind of touches on what I said before about when you think about Christianity has been around for like 2,000 years, when you think about how old the human species is, um, how old uh, the earth is, the universe, it's like Christianity is a leaf born on the wind in a sense, or it's just a small fraction of a second in the history of man or the history of the cosmos. And yet people people are so susceptible to belief and they're so afraid to give up their beliefs, I sometimes wonder how is the next thing going to come when people still cling so blindly. But maybe it ties into what we were talking about before, how with the advent and the progression of scientific knowledge, um, literal belief keeps receding or eroding and people have less and less room to stand on well you know people who believe literally fundamentalists so um eventually it might be like you said people might believe it in a superficial symbolic level or keep it alive through ritual but literal belief will eventually be a thing of the past i'm not saying you know as a strident atheist that's what i want to be true but just trying to logically think how things will go forward maybe that's what will happen what else can you know
1: yeah it's definitely an interesting question um i've i have this idea for a story as well of um the last christian you know (laughs) like it's a science fiction set a thousand years or whatever in the future and you know and there's this kind of um i imagine it's a bit of a perverse vision really but i imagine you know like um anthropologists sort of gathered around like a dying person's bed and sort of saying right we've got to record this for posterity now (laughs) you know we've like exactly what do you believe and why because you know this is you're the last person who believes this and um you know maybe that'll be maybe that'll be the end of it you know it seems horrible to say that doesn't it you see you seem feel like almost guilty just saying it, you know, it's will, will there be an end of Christianity?
0: Well, it is weird because I think for people like you and I, like there's the, some uh, fellow uh, secular or atheist podcasters. I know like C web, uh, for instance, who was raised in a pretty much a secular home. And um, I almost envy him because I don't think people like that have the same psychological baggage that we do. I think no matter how far you break away from the indoctrination of your youth, uh, some of that psychological baggage or damage stays with you. And there is some guilt when you kind of analyze um, that religion of your youth, even though every ounce of reason within you tells you that it's just as man-made as uh, Ashtaroth or Thor or you know Ishtar or whatever.
1: Yeah, definitely. I mean, and that's one of the things that I, uh, like I had a lot of, you know, like I'm still really scared about what I've written in a sense for this play because there are certain scenes where I was talking about, I, I sent the scene, to an actor and they read it and they they were a christian being brought up as well and they said they were really disturbed and um uh just just not 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 put off but disturbed and you know like felt icky by this um by this scene in which jesus is abused by the um the other youths of of nazareth you know they're saying to him you're like you're a bastard you're unclean you're you know you're a filthy gentile you're not a real jew etc etc really and they really heaped the abuse on him at this point and it's and she said that you know it it seemed really really shocking to her and i felt kind of kind of guilty writing it as well as feeling like am i actually blaspheming (laughs) the name of jesus am i you know, it's, it's almost like he's there in front of me and I'm going, you fucking... Yeah, because
0: <laughs> you're a, in part that these characters are all um, a part of you. They come from you and their words come right. from you, right?
1: It was, it, it, you know, and and in a sense as well, that's one of the reasons why I want to stage the play, why I want to put it on, because I want to see exactly how deep these roots go do you know what i mean it's like how deep are how deeply christian are we really you know well that um
0: what was i gonna say well i think in a way you know that's a positive sign in a sense if your work is so profound or powerful that it disturbs you and disturbs others it at least means that you're hitting a vein or a nerve or something and and that you're probably onto something,
1: you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, hopefully, I mean, like I say, it's nothing that historical scholarship hasn't talked about for years and years. And, but it's just, it's, I think it's a little bit different when you actually put it on, on, on a stage in front of people. Um, but the, the thing is what I've always, what I've tried to stick, um, you know, it's basically a retelling of the Christian mythos, the Christian gospel in its own way. So everything that happens in it is, 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 you know, may never happened, and it's a a totally fictional story. But it's meant to be consistent with the character of Jesus. It's meant to be consistent with him sticking to the Jewish law completely, and it's or you know at least having the better interpretation of it than people. And it's you know it's consistent with people rejecting him as well. So as much as people might get offended or, or or so forth, you know that may happen, but. Uh, when I was writing this I, I, I didn't set out to be offensive but I didn't want to pull any punches and you know and censor myself either so hopefully it's right down the line in terms of uh...
0: well I think so as an artist whether you're writing a song a play a novel whatever it is I think first and foremost you have to be true to yourself and uh, all of us have that problem with creative people of the inner negative dialogue when sometimes we imagine how others will like criticize us or how they might receive our work negatively. And it's tough. It's one of those things that that's easier said than done, but you always have to try to keep your eyes on the prize to use a cliche and, uh, and stay true to your own vision. And I think, and this is something only probably an artist can appreciate or truly understand, but by being true to your own vision you're also serving society in a sense too, because in order to give society genuine art and art is such an important part of culture and society that you can't overly censor yourself or you can't um, sacrifice your own vision and give a watered down version that you think other people will find acceptable. I think great art is is often art that some people are going to find controversial or disturbing. Um, And if uh, you're worried about blaspheming or other people think your work is blasphemous, you know, you should just remind them about those, uh, you know, those lost infancy gospels or narratives where like uh, Jesus um, uses his powers to kill another child or brings little clay birds to life and, I remember telling a devout Christian friend when, when I was like a teenager about those, and him and his father were like pissed and and uh, tried to assert that, no, that's not true, that, that's ludicrous, that's made up. They didn't believe that those gospels actually existed. But if you actually do your homework, you know, you listen to people like Dominic Cross and or even believing Christians who are also theologians and biblical scholars, they're all too real. They might not be canonical, but yeah, they're understand. out there.
1: And it's kind of you know within that tradition to some extent. I mean, there's one scholar said about the Gospels and the historical Jesus is that it's like looking into a into a well. You kind of see a reflection of yourself. And so the kind of one of the things I was trying to do was trying to just understand how what Jesus kind of means to me as an individual, and writing my own sort of midrash on my own interpretation of, of of his life and his scripture and everything uh, uh, the scripture about him and so um i think you know it's it's you know given that none of these tales are probably 100 percent true yeah like including all the other religions in the world it's probably it's probably a good idea i think for everybody to sit down and write their own one you know, in one one sense or another. I mean, it's, maybe it's one of those things we should encourage children to do on the first day of school. Right? Here we go. What we're going to do today is um, your own creation myth. How did the, how did the the world come into being? You know, it's your story. You tell it, or you know, however they could choose. A, well, you know, that, why don't they do that? But but then you know that's a that's a, another topic, of course, the indoctrination of children. And I guess yeah, I mean, I, I like a like I wasn't my parents aren't particularly really at all religious and um but I do come from a you know fairly church going the Church of England family and I did go to a church church school so you know but at the same time I'm still quite sort of grateful for the for the um, for the mythos and the um you know all the the great art and everything and so I I guess I kind of look at this as a as a as an as an addition to that and you know something which uh, modern people of the 21st century can sort of see Jesus in a, in a new and more humanistic sort of light.
0: And I think it's good too that it might uh, spur people onwards to uh, study things um, like um, what influenced the uh, the early Christians or. It will just inspire people, hopefully, to think harder about the the nature of Jesus and different (laughs) concepts of Jesus and maybe teach them to uh, discover all those things that um, biblical scholars have been telling us for years, but the average Christian isn't aware of.
1: Mm, Yeah, indeed. And it's just so... um you know, there seems to be a sort of a, such a limitation on on this sort of thing, you know, as if it's like this kind of secret knowledge that only, you know, extremely intelligent, learned scholars can understand. And that's not the case. I mean, I rem- remember, th- not recently I read that 80% of any scientific subjects, and I'm going to include the humanities here, um, can be understood by virtually everybody. The, the other 20% is the really hard stuff, but the 80% is the stuff that people will get and i think people i think people have always got that the kind of gospels are a mishmash of different traditions and you know and why has jesus got two names jesus and christ is there a reason for that there probably is um and you know so i think people automatically suspect this stuff and you know we're living in this world of um deconstructed superheroes you know in terms of like the batman begins and and all this sort of stuff so why don't we have it you know for the for the um for the mythological bedrock of our society that's my um a my jesus life. reboot yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, that's funny that's way of looking at it, but yeah. you know it's fine it. I-, I think
0: this kind of uh yeah a divide or like a division or a compartmentalization that the average believing Christian has to kind of, uh, acquire or employ where on the one hand, Obviously the Bible is made up of different books. I mean it even says the book of so and so, the book of the you know whether it's the Old Testament with the book of Genesis, the book of Leviticus, the book of Numbers, or whether it's the Gospel of Mark, the Gospel of Luke. I mean it's telling you right there that it's made up of different parts. And yet I still I think like the average devout Christian almost envisions the bible as this one perfect book with one author perhaps even god that kind of drifted down from the heavens and they don't really stop to fully think to to be fully cognizant of the fact of the implications that these books were all written by different authors
1: yeah yeah definitely and um uh i think that's i think that's the one big challenging thing at least coming from a from a protestant background which is where i come from is that there's i think a lot of believers and and i suppose just religious people particularly muslims um have you know have a similar thing to this as they they like the kind of gripping onto the bible and saying this is it this one thing you know, centers the universe, this one thing, you know, you can just imagine (laughs) beams of light coming out of it, you know, and everything (laughs) like (laughs) everything coming together just here and now in this perfect one text. And, you know, it's, it's, it's such a fantastically powerful um, idea, but I, you know, it's been, that's, that idea has been debunked by philosophy for since ever perhaps but at least certainly in the last two centuries or so and uh you know they're they're never really going to get it back and so they're just i think they're always going to look progressively more pathetic in their defense of this or that about you know this particular little detail you know in the bible um i don't know it's 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 a, it's a tricky thing because Apparently, according to um, I'm not sure if you listen to um, Robert M. Price, the the Bible Geek podcast. You ever heard that? One? Oh yeah, actually,
0: one? Um, there's a follower. I'll give him a little shout out. Uh, a follow, yeah, I have followers. My <laughs> disciple. No, there's um, a, a guy who listen. I call him a friend. I uh, consider him a friend of the show. Uh, goes by the Twitter handle uh, Crocoduck. and I had no idea who Robert M. Price was until recently and he sent me a link and it was to a talk he gave called um is the bible mind conf and it was about the way that non-believers tend to demonize the bible instead of even though yes we don't believe in it literally looking at it as a um as as kind of a literary treasure or something like that. Yep. And so I did a whole episode on that because I actually apologized because I had posted a bit from Leviticus, I think, on Twitter, where it talked about how any, any child who curses their mother or father should be put to death. And I kind of cheekily wrote Wicked Little Book. And Crocodile said... Um, no it's it's not wicked you know we sh- we stand on the shoulders of giants etc and then he introduced me to the works of Robert and Price and wow. so i did a whole episode about is the bible really wicked is it this ugly uh, evil okay. thing and um my conclusion at the end of the day is that it's both it's an inspirational literary, uh, literary work that's sometimes filled with beauty and poetry and moral truths. And it's sometimes filled with absolute Bronze Age barbarism and ugliness. And one point, and I learned this through the process, I asked myself, I was trying to be intellectually honest and trying to unmask my own hypocrisy, if there was any on the on the subject. And I said, I don't like the Noah story because I find it morally offensive. And yet I find the um, Utnapishtim story in the Epic of Gilgamesh kind of adorably quirky or quaint. And you know and I love the Epic of Gilgamesh. And I think part of the crux of it was is that I can afford to love the epic of Gilgamesh because I know people don't believe in it literally. It's this quaint little tale from antiquity, but I know people still believe in the Noah story literally, so I'm afraid to endorse it because there are still people who believe that it's somehow moral for a deity to wipe out man like stepping on an anthill because he suddenly realizes he's night. Not quite happy with his uh, creations. And um, it's kind of a dangerous idea to believe in that stuff, literally. But I also said that what I liked about the the Gilgamesh epic, too, and, and that flood narrative is older, of course, is that the main god, who would probably be the parallel of like Yahweh, I believe his name is Enlil. He's kind of, pardon my French, he's kind of the asshole of the narrative. He decides he's going to drown humanity. And the other gods, like Ishtar, are more sympathetic. They flee to the heavens because they're disturbed by the flood. The goddess Ishtar weeps for humanity as a woman in childbirth. And um, so, I mean, when you look at things like the the slaughter of the Midianites, the Amalekites, Moses saying kill the male ch- children but the young women children who haven't known a man keep for yourselves i yeah. mean sure there's ugly stuff in mythology but when you know people believe in some of this stuff literally it's hard not to find some of it abhorring or to recoil from it you know
1: definitely and i think that's i mean that's kind of one of the the issues that I've come up against in, in, in promoting this play or trying to get people interested in it is because they assume that, you know, or well, you're writing about Jesus, either therefore you you must utterly hate religion and utterly hate Christianity, or you must utterly love and respect Christianity. And, uh, you know, it's like, well, no, that's, you know, it's, the, 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 it's I'm trying to go for somewhere in between it. But I think it, you know, I mean, I think what you know like w- what the sound of your podcast is doing i think the the best way to defeat fundamentalism and to uh, bring about a better version of re- religion a better version of christianity is to learn about it as in as much detail as possible and and use uh, every uh, interpretation as a response to people who literally do still believe those things and to me um uh I think you've got to uh be more like I, I would and I respect what Richard Dawkins says I respect what Christopher Hitchens used to say and I uh, completely agree with him in most senses but you know I think I think atheists secularists or all, all alike should at least go some way to reclaiming the um the 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 idea of god in a literary sense because if if for no other reason other than what a great way to diffuse it because if you can just see it as purely as a story and if you can just see it see it purely as the way we see game of thrones or star wars or whatever do you know what i mean then i think people will become more and more civilized about it because if if the world really was like the bible says it is it would be like living in game of thrones and nobody would want that you know (laughs) and so i mean i think you know education is the best weapon against the ignorance and so forth and um so to me um but then this comes from you know living in a living in a european country and not having um you know religion anywhere really apart from in church and so you know it might be a different kind of 'cause I remember when I first got the internet, well when YouTube really first started taking off and everything, and I watched the atheist experience and I watched you know the Sam Harris debates and stuff like that and i you know I was really surprised at how uh vociferous um American atheists were, and you know but then you know you think about it, it's not really that much of a surprise <laughs> when you've got the um the the you know those big billboards on on the highways and stuff so I, I i don't know i mean if there's one thing that gets on my nerves i I, ha- I do hate it when christians say things like um oh, atheists are so angry or so you know willing to attack and it's well you know they, they they take that inspiration from somewhere
0: yeah that real that gets under my skin too and uh and i like what you were talking about about the somewhere in between um because i think you know why does that have to be either or? In a, in a sense, why can't you have an ardent love of mythology, but believe it's dangerous to take it literally? You know what I mean? Yeah, it's like yeah. I think believers have trouble trying to wrap their heads around how someone can kind of have a love or fascination for the study of religion in general and for myths and symbolism, but have the rational perspective that okay they all seem to be man-made so maybe we shouldn't take any of them literally you know and and, and somehow um, they have this view of the atheist as the kind of arrogant cold um, boogeyman or whatever that I mentioned (laughs) earlier And, and it's like I still for lack of a better word I still consider myself a highly spiritual person and that sounds weird and I'm a fan of Bill Maher you know he's a ardent atheist, outspoken atheist. And he would sometimes kind of chide guests saying, well, what does that even mean? Spiritual or something like that. And I know what it means to me. It's like, um, I believe in the spirit. I believe in the soul. I just doubt that they survive the death of the body. You know, I believe that consciousness is an emergent property of the brain. We, we know the brain is this kind of multifold, compart, compartmentalized organ. We know there's parts responsible for emotion, uh, vision, um, memory, impulse control. And we know when the brain deteriorates or gathers plaques or whatever, you end up with like Alzheimer's, uh, damage one part, this happens, that happens, et cetera. So I believe in the term spirit or soul poetically, like... As being synonymous with psyche, um, but I believe the soul is the product of neurons, whatever. <laughs> and when the brain go, I'm a, I'm I'm definitely a strong atheist in that sense. I believe most likely when the brain dies, consciousness dies. That's the end of the road. It's an emergent property. And for people to think otherwise, I would ask them to look at, unfortunately, their loved ones with Alzheimer's or to look at a coma a coma patient or to look at a person who st- sustains a massive um, brain injury or something like that. Um, the only devil's advocate uh, comeback I could think of is maybe you have these far out uh, theories like the brain just works as a receptacle or kind of a funnel for consciousness, you know? And when the brain goes, consciousness disperses back out into the universe. Okay, well, you can't prove that empirically and it's speculation. So the logical conclusion seems to be that the brain itself is responsible for consciousness. Um, I don't even know how I got on this topic, but...
1: <laughs> um, I yeah, I've come to think i sort of used to believe in a soul Uh, i was quite agnostic about it for a while um but i've recently come to think that it's it is all completely physical as you say but there's a past and there's a future which are kind of in some sense um well the past is definitely well has happened but uh and and the effects of your brain and your soul you know or your consciousness whatever you want to call it has had an effect in the past and will continue to have an effect in the future even though it may only be um confined to this very one little s- small space in the universe um it definitely has some kind of effect on on the physical world or the human world at least oh, on the physical world outside it and so i i tend to think of the of the soul as um as a physical, you know, and people say, "Well, you can't add up two and two, or you, you know, you can't, you can't make logic into a, into a, a, a physical thing." And well, maybe you can't, but if you really could understand science to such a degree that you could look at the interactions of neuro neurology, and you could see certain neurons working in su- such a certain way that produced this effect or this thought, then well wouldn't that be like you know like just the physicality of, of consciousness wouldn't that be like the physicality of soul so you know to me it all seems physical really, and
0: to me too i think like it, it helps to look at it in evolutionary way because i think the senses somehow play into it like if you picture Um, you know, some of the organisms, like I believe it's Pacaya, like one of the first uh, vertebrates is this flat worm with eye spots. You know, first we had like cells that could kind of detect light and be drawn towards it. And we had rudimentary creatures with eye spots for detecting light. And then the eye became more and more complex. Then you had like reptiles and amphibians with uh really rudimentary brains that, like, uh, would be the equivalent of our brain stem. And you can see how, if you look at our brain, it, it almost like an onion. It, it's formed of these evolutionary layers. And you can see how... Um, awareness and the senses became increasingly more and more complex with the different evolutionary uh, stages. And eventually you get to mammals, uh, you get to hominids, and you get to us. And it kind of makes sense when you have these complex sensory organs, when you have this brain that contains these complex evolutionary layers, it it kind of makes sense that you might end up with a creature. Um whose awareness is aware of its own awareness in a sense, you know what I mean? And that's kind of our curse and our gift that we're, we're aware that we're alive. So then we have to wrestle with the idea that someday we won't be alive. And I don't, I doubt no matter how smart they are that any other advanced creature, um, on this planet, at least uh, has to wrestle with its own mortality in that sense, or the awareness yeah. of its own mortality. And I think in a way that's kind of, to some degree, that's probably the impetus for man coming up with religion. Um, but I think we also have kind of instincts or drives that towards the ritual, I mean, towards the ritualistic or the transcendent. And I think, uh, like, I used to really have an interest in... Um, Eastern religion and philosophy, and it was kind of what I gravitated towards after I lost my belief in a, a personal God, because at least you could have some sense of spirituality without needing to believe in a personal God or the kind of New Yorker idea of the uh, the old man with the gray beard sitting on a cloud or something. Um and and I think in Eastern mysticism, we find that belief of all is one, one is all, and it leads into that transcendent idea of being plugged into something larger to us than ourselves, that everything's connected. But even that, I think, might have neurological roots. I think it, it, we just have, um, because we're aware of our own awareness or something like that, we sometimes have this kind of illusion that we're connected to something larger than ourselves or that everything is connected but the sense i, I think that's a product of the brain too not to bum everyone out um <laughs> and now I'm, I'm probably I it's definitely
1: wishful thinking, wishful thinking in some sense but at the same time i i the way i look at it is that's um that's the fact that we can always imagine that bit further is the thing that makes us special and that makes us what we are and you know like we can always sort of uh, just reach out that little bit further and imagine you know so many different crazy things that it's you know like people say that the universe is really old and I suppose it is it's 14 billion years old and that's pretty old but then it's not as old as 50 billion years old or 50 trillion years old and I can just come up with these numbers off the top of my head because I'm a human being, and we can just imagine stuff. And um, I think that's that to me is the is the um, is the beauty and and the curse in some ways uh, of the of the at the root of it all is that we can we can always go that one a little bit further. We seem to be somehow in tune with the idea of the infinite, and so you know we never we never get away from it completely. And I don't think people will ever really stop believing it's things.
0: Hard it's hard to shake. Like I'll walk out of the house in the morning and I'll see vibrant flowers stirring in the breeze or, you know, I'll, the sunlight, I'll feel the sunlight hit my skin and, you know, I'll look out at the horizon and I feel like I'm plugged into something bigger or I feel like my mind is expanding into the infinite or something like that. It's hard to put into words, but you feel plugged in or tied into the infinite. And like I, and I, I'm thankful for that. And I love that feeling. But at the end of the day, we don't know what the exact cause of it is. And the the more yeah. grounded explanation seems to be that it has its roots in the brain and consciousness. Sure. Um, but I kind
1: of it- a, a brain, a trick our brain is playing on us, but I, it, it could um, be that
0: I, evolution wants not. It, it's weird to say evolution wants because you make it sound like a thing with a will, but it could be an evolutionary advantage for a being to feel euphoric uh, yeah, yeah. or to feel um, tied into something. You, you know,
1: it, it's yeah. That yeah. you can observe that in gorillas who uh, who um, start doing a weird kind of. Grunting and dancing almost Uh, when 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 the the yeah yeah or when there's there's when there's a big storm coming in and they start doing this weird it's not a ritual and it's not a a, a dance as such but they start reacting in a very weird way and so yeah you know and it's it's I suppose it's no surprise that all these things are sort of equally either connected with with nature or at the same time they're connected with things of our own creation. I mean, I'm I'm really interested in technology. I'm, I'm really into uh, like electronic music, and I'm really into um, uh, computer graphics and stuff like that. And one of the things I love to do is just watch a great um, computer graphic video, you know, and with all the fractals and all the numbers and stuff like that in there, and that just completely blows my mind. And those things are kind of you know completely uh human constructed in one sense at least i know we take, taken i know we take a lot of that from nature but you know i think we've i think we've just got like an, an, an instant ability to be able to be um amazed and uh and and numinous about things and that's yeah yeah and um great word numinous yeah,
0: Hitchens a, used to use the word numinous, that's a great one, but I, I think it's uh, you're right. Another, like Hitchens used to like say transcendent a lot, too. I think that we have a, a natural instinct towards or inclination towards the numinous, towards the transcendent, but the, that could all be consciousness, you know, yeah, brain-born consciousness,
1: sense. put your hand on the people's shoulder and say, Right. You know it could all just be a power play that someone's making on you though it could all just be someone taking advantage of this typically human ability to imagine beyond yourself and making you think and do things and not making you and not allowing you to think for yourself that's what i would say is um i mean i suppose and people have been criticizing organized religion since the beginning of time so you know even jesus may have done that so whited
0: sepulchres and all of that like a uh, finger wagging at the at the uh pharisees etc right
1: right yeah so it's um uh so you know right from the start it's a very very sort of powerful dangerous tool i think and i suppose what i'm trying to do is just uh i mean i look at the, the study of religion in the same way that you might like a biologist might look at a study of a really poisonous wasp or something you know like you can put it under a microscope and you can go look at it and think fuck that is a scary creature you know it could do this to you make your blood swell up inside your veins or whatever and so uh with me i kind of you know i I like to look at the very the real dark stuff in 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 the center of religion as i think that generally explains the most
0: yeah and it's good i mean if you're able to pinpoint the, what's problematic about it uh, then perhaps also you get a better understanding of, of what's good about it too yeah, and yeah. what can be done away with and and what can stay what's you what's useful about it and what is isn't but it's fine with that talk about consciousness and you know that sense of awareness th- that we have of maybe a higher power or you feel like you're one with the cosmos whatever i forget which richard dawkins book it was it might have been the god delusion but there's a part that really stuck with me. And I don't know if this is an English poem or what, but there's a chapter entitled Binker, I believe, and and it's referencing a children's poem by the same name. name, I think think it's named Binker. And it's a poem about a child with an imaginary friend uh, named Binker. And he talks about how Binker is always there, how Binker is this and that, and how he's oh, like how he, Binker knows this about him, and he knows this about Binker. And um, his point was that there might be a correlation between the imaginary friend phenomenon in children, in the in the sensation that adults have, that they sometimes feel like there's a presence other than their own or that they're aware or tied into something bigger than themselves
1: right yeah my friends told me about that um i haven't read it myself but i wouldn't be surprised at all i think that's i think that's extremely extremely likely um and that
0: could be a survival type of mechanism as well
1: yeah and there's all this this new sort of scientific study of religion where they're looking inside people's brains when they're praying and stuff like that. The so
0: God module, remember that? Yeah.
1: Um, <laughs> <laughs> um and all that is but I can see you know, I think that a lot of evolutionary biologists or some evolutionary biologists have made a case for why it's a good idea to have this um Uh, imaginary friend looking out for you and um and i think you can open it out to monotheism as well when it gets to a little further down the line in the sense of um you know if if you believe that the creator of the universe is on your side then you're going to have a lot of confidence and you're more
0: likely, yeah, to be able to go out and do things without being a nervous wreck and falling apart. Like I use an example like because I, I spoke about how I like Joseph Campbell. And Joseph Campbell has this theory that I find fascinating, but I kind of disagree with. He, he would talk about hidden hands, this feeling that when you embrace, when you follow your bliss, it's as if you're being guided where you need to go by these hidden hands. And I used to talk about how sometimes I even still do this. Like, let's say I drive, I don't know, 40 miles away for a party or something, and I'm driving home, and uh, maybe my car is not the greatest in the world, or I'm afraid I might be having engine trouble or something, and I'll find myself going, oh, please just let me get home in one piece. You know, and somehow I almost feel like I'm convincing myself that there's something staring me oh, home.
1: and help- do that every- every day you know what i mean i am mean, I mean, I mean, like yeah i mean i'll i will go out and i'll sort of say right if <laughs> what do i like i'll be playing street fighter and i'll be like if i win this round then i'm gonna get this play published and everything will be all right right and, you know, it's yeah like complete... and it's like why would that have anything to do with this but it's um you know like yeah it's just it keeps happening in in my brain and hopefully it's one of the things that um, allows me to get this uh, you know like that allows me a bit more of a uh, uh, let's say for want of a better word a spiritual perspective on on these sort of issues as compared to a lot of atheists you know who you,
0: yeah i like debunk you. it sometimes like it, it stinks because i don't want to totally debunk it because it is a helpful type of mindset like you say to feel like there's some kind of guiding force or something but the way i sometimes debunk it is with my sense of justice or injustice. I'm like, how can I say there's these hidden hands watching out for me when maybe two weeks ago along that same stretch of road, um, you know, a a couple and their young children died in a brutal car crash? Or how can I say there's hidden hands watching out for me when on the other side of the world, a tsunami wiped out thousands of people like they were ants uh, coming out of an anthill being stepped on or something. Or um, why does one couple give birth to a healthy child while another child is born with its brain outside of its skull and uh, unable to function or something like that? Certainly. And, you know, so it's like there's almost something grotesquely arrogant or narcissistic or solipsistic about thinking that the big guys watching out for you and keeping you safe but what about every single innocent that dies that we read about in the news every day where were their hidden hands you know yeah and that's what makes it seem like a survival mechanism in
1: a way and in in america you've got a lot of things of like people um sort of praying at football games and stuff haven't you like they (laughs) yes we do (laughs) for the victory that um they got over the other team who were praying just as well
0: oh musicians and actors too oh the first person i want to thank is god like really you gotta thank not to speak glibly but the first person you gotta thank is your imaginary friend why not maybe I don't know uh, your genes uh, that you were born with, you know, a a decent, capable brain or thank your parents for passing their genes on to you or for being decent people and helping to uh, facilitate your creativity or something. Or I don't know. maybe thank your friends for not being assholes or something. I, I don't yeah, know, but, yeah. you know. <laughs> there's, a lot, there's
1: a lot you could go into. There yeah. I suppose maybe if they mean it in just this 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 um, a metaphorical, figurative way, then... Or like a, like they, a form they of humility. They, do, so they always mean it in the in the um, the person in the sky, um, and they look up at the sky at the same time they say it.
0: It's like, what about all the other artists who are de- decent people and... um. Yeah, well, we live in a, a golden age for creative people where if we want to, we can publish our own music on iTunes or we can publish a blog. But I'm thinking old term, because like I'm a, a musician too. I remember the days when I was in like high school when you had to record on like a four track and try to pedal your cassette around to different like labels. What about all the the, the uh, decent artists who never got published yeah, but God yeah. liked you, or why did God help one sports team win, and what about the other team? What are they like, yeah. cursed? Yeah. You
1: know. So <laughs> I think that's the that's the step that most people just don't want to take, isn't it? Because they don't want to admit to them.
0: Because there goes the safety net, yeah. Yeah, or there exactly. goes the illusion. Yeah. Then you have to say, "Holy shit! I'm one temporary <laughs> being on a tiny planet. I'm one. I'm one ape on a big mud ball." What happens if I st- step in, step on the road at the wrong time and get hit by a car or whatever? You know, <laughs> what well, if my cells start dividing the wrong way and I get cancer? But
1: yeah, it's it's, it's but at least at least you have the truth. At least exactly,
0: that. embrace the vagaries. Try to. Uh, I, I remember there was a time when I was first losing my religion, and to quote REM, in a sense that it was I was a nervous wreck. I, I mean. Really? I was. How old were you when that happened? Well, um, let's say I was in, I was in my probably early middle school years when I first started to put together the fact that the Easter Bunny and Santa Claus were made up. I'm Uh, not sure if you say Father Christmas or whatever in England, but, uh, and, um, you know, and then we don't have middle school. Oh, middle school for me would be like sixth grade would probably be like, um, I'm trying to think here. Like, uh, you enter high school when you're like 14 or 13. So I wasn't even a teenager yet. Um, so it could have been like uh, age 11 or something. Um, and then, you know, like partly because of my own reasoning capabilities and also because other kids would spread the secret around at school. Like kids would find out from home and, or older siblings and ruin it for everyone else. There is no Easter bunny or whatever. And, um, then your parents would hesit, uh, hesitantly or be, you know, grudgingly admit that, yeah, those things are fake. Then I kind of put two and two together that people seem to talk the same way about Jesus and God as they did, uh, the Easter bunny and Santa. And, um, I started to think I was kind of a naturally philosophical, philosophical kid As maybe all children are at some phase. Like you ask yourself, how do you know what's real and what isn't real and things like that. And, um, so in middle school, I started to, um, started to suss out that there may not be a god. And I started to, uh, I've always had a love of drawing, a love of fantasy. So I developed a love of mythology. And that turned into an interest in world religion and ancient history. And then I started to realize, holy shit, the religion I was indoctrinated into seems to be pretty much the same as these dead religions we now call mythologies. And Wow, some of these dead religions, according to scholars, actually seem to have shaped the religion I was taught to believe in literally. And the religion I was taught to believe in literally seems to even come out of some of these dead religions, namely um Mesopotamian polytheism, uh, etc. And, and then you know, you read about Zoroastrianism and different things, and uh eventually I would say um. By the end of my high school years, by the end of my late teens, I had sussed out that the religion I was born into was basically made up, um, that there was no empirical proof for an afterlife, there was no empirical proof for a higher power, and I was a miserable little bastard. And uh, most of my songs, because I told you I, I sang in a band, still technically in the band, but we don't practice... I wrote a song called Skullfuck, and uh, the lyrics one, how'd it go? Uh, Woke up this morning, sunlight seared my eyes, torn into this world that I despise. Um, No holy father to drive the demons from my head. The mirror shows me reflections of the living dead. And I wrote a song called Six Feet Down. (laughs) <laughs> and, uh, and six feet, six feet down. One, um, what if there's no great beyond? What if there's no obli- What if there's just oblivion? But I found a way to rhyme oblivion with a uh, with beyond. But um, and so that's kind of a reflection where my mind was at as someone in their late teens, early twenties, and I was miser miserable. I was a tortured artist. And one time, I had this argument with a with a the bass player at the time, and I said, "If there is," I said, "basically, I don't believe in God." But if there is no God, that means life has no meaning. And he had kind of a humanist point of view, even for a young person, and he said. He was, he was quite kind of like obsessed or not obsessed. He was quite upset and indignant. And he said, how can you say life has no meaning just because there's no God, you know? And basically I started to develop this positive point of view that even if there was no God, even if there was no afterlife, even if my existence is temporary, I still exist. I'm still a living, breathing being with thoughts and feelings. I'm still here. And that's something. And I still had empathy and compassion, which I think are evolutionary traits at the end of the day, too, as much as apologists want to put a religious spin on those things. I think those are things that kind of help uh, like group solidarity and, and empathy. Uh, those are traits that can help social beings, but also, unfortunately, tribalism and violence are also traits, as we can see in chimpanzees, which we naturally possess too. But I develop I, over time, maybe just out of, you know, the the capacity for the brain to heal as the body heals, or the mind to heal as the body heals. I became a nerd to the idea of my own mortality, for the most part. And the older I get, the less the idea of my own mortality bothers me. I'm still bothered by the idea of my loved ones' mortality, but not my own. The idea of being dead doesn't bother me in the slightest, and and, and but it used to be a source of almost nightmarish terror. Really,
1: wow. Yeah,
0: but I've come to like a humanistic type of point of view where I have a very positive outlook of the experience of being alive. Um, And just try to enjoy the ride for what it is and try to do your best. And whether there's a God or not, we still do seem to possess traits like empathy and compassion. And we feel better when we're better to one another than if we're violent to one another. Mm -hmm. And I don't think, you know, it makes me feel better. It makes me feel better to go to a party and put my arm around a friend and to greet a stranger warmly than it would if I went up and and hit a homeless person over the head with a crowbar you know what I mean so it's like God or not we're still these kind of moral apes and we should try to make the best out of this whatever it is and try to find out the truth of it life is so profound why not try to find out the truth of what it's all about instead of trying to placate yourself with a myth you know what I mean Uh, yeah that's definitely right but that's somehow we got onto my story, but that's my story kind of
1: it's <laughs> very very interesting I, know,
0: I want you I know I was thinking the same thing um that we should probably wrap things up but I want you to give people the crucial whatever crucial information you want people to know about the play either sure. where they can find out more about you when uh, maybe about uh Kickstarter I don't know if you have an account yet or what.
1: So the name of the play is Son of Man. Uh, you can follow it on Twitter at Son of Man Play. Uh, you can find it on Kickstarter, which should be up and running now. Um, and it's our Kickstarter is going to run from the 1st of June 2014 to the end of June 2014. Um, and so we're looking for support um, from atheists and agnostic donors across the world to give money to us to um support this first uh first which i what i think is the first atheist play about jesus i could be wrong about that but I, i can't find any others so i think it might be um and uh yeah so if you could come to kickstarter son of man or twitter son of man play um then please do come and give your support um we've got some tickets to give away and t-shirts and things like that and you know uh, what i'm hoping for i guess is that i'm hoping it opens up a, opens up a, a doorway into into more atheist fiction about religious narratives because there's so many things that we've we've not there's so many stones i think that we've not really picked up and looked under in terms of the fictional world uh, I I of, most often think this about prehistory about um humans and things but specifically in this case as well and you know for instance I just think it wouldn't it be fantastic if there was a story about how the old testament came to get written came to have been written you know like um the, with the babylonian exile and all that sort of stuff so maybe if we get this jesus play you know into um into if it, if it, if it captures people's imagination perhaps we can create even more atheist works uh, about religion for, for atheists and that would uh
0: okay so alexander nye the man behind the play son of man and it was uh awesome talking to you and um I feel like I sat around talking with uh, a kindred spirit or an old friend and I'm glad we had to have, we got to have this stimulating conversation and I'm glad that you got uh, to get word about your play out there as well.
1: Uh, It's been great talking to you, Phil. Really, really enjoyed that. That's uh, really stimulating and thanks so much for having me on. It's a big, big help.
0: Me too. We'll stay in touch on uh, Twitter and who knows, maybe you will come back on again someday.
1: Great. Yeah, I'd love to.
0: Hi, thanks for listening to this special interview episode of The Weekend Out. If you enjoyed the show, please consider leaving a review or subscribing through iTunes. You can also go to Podbean and check out the archives and most recent episodes. If you'd like to contribute to the show's upkeep, you can do so while you're at the official Weekend Out Podbean page by using the PayPal widget. You can also go to The Weekend Out YouTube channel, follow us on Facebook, follow the show on Twitter. And we're also on Stitcher now. I think that's about it. So thanks for listening and until next week.